Welcome to the Dissolve Podcast, episode 26, the produced by Jack Abramoff edition. I'm Scott Tobias, editor of Dissolve. It's a Friday, so that means there are new films out by Alex Gibney, Michael Winterbottom, Woody Allen, and Joe Swanberg. On today's show, we talk about prolific filmmakers and whether the rate of production has an impact on the quality of the work. But first, the release of the YA adaptation, The Giver, prompts a discussion over the virtues of fidelity in book-to-film adaptations. Has Hollywood gotten too conservative in bringing popular novels to the screen? And what are the virtues in abandoning the source altogether? The game this week is The Touch, a quiz inspired by the mostly ancient action stars of The Expendables 3. And we wrap it up, as always, with our quick-fire recommendation segment, 30 Seconds to Sell. Stay tuned, Dissolvers. The Giver comes out this week, and it's the receiver of a negative review by Tasha Robinson. It's the latest in a year full of YA adaptations in Hollywood following Divergent and The Fault in Our Stars, which both rode big fan bases to big box office. But there's a more conservative approach to those adaptations, perhaps related to the notion that fans of these books have a stake in the film staying close to the text. At the same time, Jonathan Glazer's Under the Skin departs so radically from the book that his co-screenwriter reportedly didn't even read it. Tasha and I have had this argument many times before. What is the importance of staying faithful to the book? And even if you want a loose adaptation, how far of a departure is too far? With me to discuss it are Tasha Robinson, of course, and... Keith Phelps. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Tasha, let's start with you. You're wrong, Scott. You're wrong, wrong, wrong. Okay. Well, we'll we'll get to my wrongness in just a second. Um, (laughs) Is the point I made in the intro about why adaptation's a fair one? Uh, Does fan investment in books like Twilight, Harry Potter, the Hunger Games series, or Divergent, The Fall of Our Stars, do they come with a greater responsibility to, to stick to the text? Not a responsibility per se. I think the the director and uh, writer, the filmmaker's responsibility is to the film first and foremost. Mm. And I think just as a, a blanket statement, uh, like over this entire conversation, we can say that the golden rule is it it doesn't matter how close to or far away from the book the film is if it's a good film if it you know if it works on the screen that said there's certainly a demand to stay closer to the text there's certainly a pressure to stay closer to the text there's certainly you know the constant yammering of people uh, out there on social media uh, you left this scene out you did this scene wrong you added this scene in so you know they have to be aware of that but they have to be aware of it in the same way they have to be aware of like bad reviews which is to say you know to the individual extent they care about such things uh like i really don't think if they had added a character into twilight or pulled a character out of twilight the movie it would have changed the box office a whit Mm -hmm. It would have changed the level of complaining, but I don't think it would have changed the number of people who saw the movie because the people who are going to see all of these movies that you named because they're invested in the books are already pre-invested. They may complain a great deal after the fact. They may not do the repeat viewing that that can really drive these films to a huge box office, but they're still going to go to see it. So I, I think that filmmakers have to be aware of, uh, of this kind of dynamic, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's the controlling factor in making the film. But I think there's other things. There's other, uh, you know, whatever the strength of an individual director in, in adapting these films, uh, you know, I think there's other forces at work here. And I, I think the people who make them are probably going to like, well, if we don't get this repeat viewings, if we do get those complaints, if the audience erodes over time, then our investment is not going to pay off. You know, I, I really feel like when you do something like Divergent, which I actually haven't seen yet, and 
and should, but, but, uh, it's not just a adaptation of a book. It's part of this whole, you know, part of this whole marketing, uh, assault with that series where it's, it's the books and the films and it's all kind of tied in together. I, I think ever since Harry Potter, there's been this sort of business recognition, recognition that, that, uh, uh, we can take this a lot further than we, than anyone's taken it before in terms of adapting books and turning it into a series and turning those series into, into something that turns into theme, theme parks and uh, ancillary marketing products and things like that. So I think the people who nervously count beans would uh, are going to prevent anything that might possibly uh, make make this uh, received a little less positively by the most ardent fans. Uh, I'm going to make sure that's not going to happen. Well, sure, but that's again, that's just all pressure. I mean, you're talking about you know marketing pressure and ancillary products are very much a consideration these days, but they're still like, if, if we're talking, well, I'm not sure the ultimate decision is in the hands of one of the people who write the film or direct it at that point. Either. Oh, sure. I'm just saying like in this room, as we're talking about, you know, what's, what's too far, what's not far enough, how we're, how the film is going to be marketed and like how well we're going to sell it should be like low considerations. Well, I, I wonder too, too, if though, if you do feel, if you do feel that inclination to be, to to replicate what, what what's there on the text, if if that leads to to mistakes, I mean, the the, the example that comes to mind immediately is uh, this the scene of the Anne Frank house in in the Fault in Our Stars, which which on on the page, you know, may be you know, somewhat in questionable taste already, but then when it actually is realized on screen, it's like, wow, you probably shouldn't have done that. Yeah, that, that's, I think that's kind of a disastrous moment in that film, which I basically like, but, uh, um, but it's sort of like the way it conflates all, conflates all these different types of suffering, different types of perseverance in, in a way that just kind of a little queasy making, frankly. Just a little bit. It also goes on way, way too long for, for a movie. Like the, the point is made and then made again and then made again and then made again. And it's just, it's, it's deadly to the movie's pacing. Yeah, well, that's another thing too of, of of just trying to figure out how it's going to work as a movie and as as an almost a distinct entity. That's that's another issue I have, and it's even even in uh, the the Hunger Games movies, which have gotten which are you know started pretty good and and got better, I think, with the second one. Um, there is that that sense of like, well, you're just kind of doing a a filmed illustration of these these books. You're not necessarily. It doesn't feel like kind of a distinct. Um, unit or or, 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 or distinctly a, a, a movie. It feels like an illustration of a book, which is which I kind of have a problem with. Well, that's that's the objection that we've always kind of disagreed on because I don't have any problem with a movie like Watchmen, which more or less just tries to put the book up on the screen because I want to see what that book looks like on the screen. I I understand your problem if you have a problem with the pacing, if you have a problem with stuff being in there that doesn't belong. I, I can understand that as an objection. Your ongoing objection to it's too literal to the text like I don't see a problem with the Hunger Games literal literacy to the text literality to the text I don't even know what the word would be there. If I, if I faithfulness basically paraphrase Scott though if I, if I can I can speak for Scott here sure uh, um, which I do so well uh, is is that it's not a problem if the film if it works as a film but it, if, if it feels like it's being true to the book at the expense of what it should be as a movie well, sure. I mean, that loops back to doesn't work on on the page. But often, uh, Scott, I think you object to movies. Now, if I can speak for Scott, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I can speak for Keith. Sometimes when you say a, a movie doesn't work for you because it's too literal to the book, I don't see your objection with the movie itself. And Hunger Games is an example of that. I, I just I didn't have the, the problems with that film that you had. Well, it feels it feels thin and, and not as thought through and not as distinctive a piece of sort of personal art. You know, and that, that is actually even... even on movies of a mass scale, 
you know, I do look for personality. I do look for something that is that is very distinct. Uh, it makes the film stand apart. Say, and I think you can you can have that. I, I give you two examples in terms of adaptations that I that I like to turn to. One is uh, is uh, the Age of Innocence, uh, the Martin Scorsese film, which is so faithful to the book. Which is just you can hear the hear the pages turning in your head. It's so you know it gets you know everything is in there and yet you know you know that that is a martin scorsese film through and through i mean it's, it touches on a lot of themes that he's that he's dealt with his whole career it's got his style it's it's it feels very much uh uh you know his kind of that sort of there's a stormy passion to the film that it, that's, that's repressed and kept under the, you know kept under the surface but it, but but feels very much his as much as wharton's um and then on the on the other side of that you have Something like uh, the Sweet Hereafter, which is an adaptation I think Keith and I like to turn to a lot, uh, based on the Russell Banks book, which is uh, the Russell Banks book, book tells the story in chronological order, but through the perspectives of different characters. You know, different chapters are told through different characters' perspectives, but it's just generally a chronology. Adam McGoin's adaptation uh, takes that and then just in, does it in his style, which is to create sort of a puzzle picture out of it and in place it's sequences of the events in a way that is much different from the from the book would be equally effective and i think in both cases um you know you get a sense of a filmmaker who has, who has a real relationship with the book and has really kind of like figured out what how am i going to express myself through this material and that's kind of what i really hope for uh, you know as far as uh book adaptations go and beyond that with the sweet hereafter it actually ends if you'll recall the book ends with a demolition derby yeah. uh, which is probably the single most cinematic thing you can imagine like how do i put this up? most people would start like well how do i put this on the screen you know and and uh um and it's that's completely gone from the movie, and and uh, I think that takes some, some real daring to, thro- to to throw out that bigger chunk of the book, and that much of a book that's that's that most people would see as very movie friendly. Well, and I mean, and, and then we I talked about in the intro that it, uh, you know uh, something like uh, Under the Skin. I mean, I think I think you could say that you know the, you know, I haven't read the Faber book, but but uh, but one of the primary themes of the film and one of the primary plot points is just completely gone. It's gutted. Like the the reason why. The, the you know the this alien is is doing what she's she's doing that's that's not that's not relevant to what the film is trying to get at at all um and uh that's just thrown out so i mean is there a point do you feel you know with, with in, in cases where uh the adaptation is really loose that it's just disrespectful that it doesn't you know it, that it's crossing some sort of line i think in the abstract i sometimes feel that way like i've never quite uh, cottoned to uh, to be uh, very 60s about it i i ain't never quite cottoned to when a really distinctive book comes along and becomes a bestseller and is everybody's reading it everybody's excited about it and hollywood picks it up and takes everything distinctive out of it and tries to make it into a movie of its time like right now the vogue is let's cram a, a love triangle in there somehow let's let's stick a love triangle into the hobbit let's stick a love triangle into the giver you know books that have no romantic uh, inclination in them at all need to have this like cookie cutter thing stamped on them because it's the fad of the moment. Something like that I think is absolutely disrespectful. Something like Under the Skin though, when I read that interview uh, about how <laughs> they didn't even read the book beforehand, I was I was pretty appalled and I went and read the book and the book is fabulous. But the book on screen would have been a profoundly different experience because 
she goes back at at night to uh, a bunch of other aliens who are there are quite a few of them hanging out in uh, at her home base and they're these like furry quadruped creatures with tails and uh, they have like long discussions about the philosophy of what they're doing and there's this whole political element involved in it um, and it would have I mean it would be very very different science fiction and it wouldn't it wouldn't have be able to to maintain the, the tone it has so i mean i don't think that that's disrespectful but i don't really think it's a book adaptation i think it's a case of looking at a, a book's idea for inspiration and then making their own movie out of it and i don't have a problem with that what i do have a problem with i guess is this idea of we should be able to bank on the popularity of a novel without actually respecting what it's about or the contents of it or the ideas of it that's that's the part where I kind of like like kind of leave. The Giver is a perfect example. Mm-hmm. That is a movie where the entire uh, reputation of that book comes from its ambivalence and its uh, its uniqueness, basically. And they get rid of both of those things in the adaptation to turn it into a very standard YA adaptation of the moment. Do you feel like that was a, that it's a cynical move? I mean, is it a, is it a lack of vision, or do you think it's like it's a, or an act of calculation? Uh, All of those things. I, I think it's absolutely in this case the the ending is so profoundly stupid, and it's very very obviously a a cynical calculated. This is how an action movie ends. So we'll we'll tack this weird action movie ending onto it that honestly makes no sense whatsoever. It's strange too, because I feel like that's a book that basically every seventh grader is reading now. And, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, if anyone's going to call bullshit on it, you know, it's going to be the people who are most familiar with it. Oh, sure. And I mean, I, I really don't think that you're going to get a bunch of seventh graders seeing this and uh, saying, well, you know, thank God it, it ended in a definitive way with big action beats. Well, I mean, one of the, one of the problems with, with that adaptation is that a book is not a film a film is not you know and and uh and it needs to be translated somehow you can't you can't you know it it, it requires um um some some interpretation so i mean so what what are what are some elements from books that that work well on screen and what are, what are some that you just kind of need to throw away I mean, for me, one of the things in that seems consistent over the adaptations that I really like is that they respect the language of the original, which can be a really dangerous thing, especially like with Stephen King adaptations. Like his his characters speak in such a specific way, and it almost never works on screen. I'm in favor of throwing out that dialogue and uh, and moving on. You can kind of see that in the two Shining adaptations. Like one of them tried to respect the the literal text <laughs> yeah. and the dialogue, and it was the effect was terrible. But in films like um, Charlotte's Web and The Last Unicorn and A Clockwork Orange and Train Spotting, all of those take like the language and the lines and the way of speaking directly from the book and kind of translate it into an on-screen version that still comes across as distinctive and idiosyncratic and, and not like everything else. And that's one of the problems I have with YA adaptations right now is they all seem to want to sound and look alike. Um, action also translates really, really well from books. What doesn't seem to translate is, uh, most particularly, is uh, like internal internal anything sure. internal monologue yeah. in particular well i always talk about i i always think the best author to, to adapt is james m cain hmm. specifically the postman always rings twice which which i think it uh, pretty much in ever almost every language has has, has resulted in a, in, a, in a fine adaptation i mean it's been been made in in uh in china it's been made in and uh in 
in Germany, it's been made in the U.S. Uh, it was it was made as Ossessione in in, uh, in Italy, and it's just it's one of those things where the story is uh, it's just so basic. The language is is the language is very spare, and you've just got and you don't have to to be tripped up with having to deal with with the problems of language. Um, and uh, you know that that was something that uh, Mike D'Angelo got into with the James Franco adaptation of. Uh, Cormac McCarthy novel uh, Child of God is just like this is all just McCarthy's language and if you're just gonna if you're just gonna put the events of the book on screen that's just not gonna work yeah, it's why it's why there's not like a long string of brilliant uh, William Faulkner <laughs> adaptations either, or, or why uh, you know you know or 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 James Joyce adaptations of great repute, or or, or Virginia Woolf. It's just you know, that sort of interiority. But it's also why why Elmer Leonard, uh, you know, someone finally cracked the code in the mid '90s and like, wait, he's writing dial. He's basically writing the screenplays for us. All his characters uh, are are you know say say what they're going to do in, in colorful ways, and and uh, that's the screenplay right there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. What would the movie adaptation of this podcast segment be like? Oh, I think it would be just a three, a few people sitting in a room. It would not be that exciting. Well, uh, no, I mean, if it was made right let's now. Let's just throw a punch right now. It throw would... a punch right now, Tasha. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, that's, a, that's a solid the, sound the effect. The foley on that is not I know. Good. Wow. Mm. Ouch. Take that, Ow! Tobias. Oh, it hit <laughs> I thought it hit me, but it, he, he was the one who got I hit. Was, this I was, is I was, like a pain triangle. It's a different thing. It's going to be the next big thing. to your defense, Scott, as I... <laughs> <laughs> sometimes do. Thank you. Thank you, Keith. Uh, thank you, Tasha. In theaters right now, you can see Alex Gibney's fella cootie documentary, Finding Fella, Michael Winterbottom's sequel to The Trip called The Trip to Italy, Woody Allen's latest confection, Magic in the Moonlight, and Joe Swanberg's latest character piece, Happy Christmas. Last year, you might have seen Gibney's The Armstrong Lie, Winterbottom's The Look of Love, Alan's Blue Jasmine, or Swanberg's Drinking Buddies, or Swanberg's 24 Exposures, or Swanberg's All the Light in the Sky. Point being, these directors churn out at least one new film a year and show no signs of slowing down. Of course, film history is filled with examples of prolific filmmakers, some of them studio hands, some of them respected auteurs. Do we want more from these filmmakers or less? And is it fair to suspect that artists lose something by working too fast? Joining me to talk about it are... Kate Phipps. And... Nathan Raven. Nathan, let's start with you. What do you see as the consequences of working too fast? Uh, are some people simply more prolific than others? Well, I think one of the consequences of working too fast is it makes your film seem less consequential. Uh, if you're being given a nonstop uh, stream of, say, Joe Swanberg movies, uh, you know, it's like some sort of uh, quarterly, you know, meat system, except that <laughs> Joe Swanberg gives you one of his movies every season. Mm-hmm. You tend not to value them uh, the way you would uh, if, like, for example, yesterday I saw a motion picture called Magnolia. Yeah. When Paul Thomas Anderson makes a movie, it, it's a goddamn experience. It's like a cultural event. It means something profound, and not just for people who like Paul Thomas Anderson, but for like the culture at large. Whereas when Alex Gibney uh, releases a movie, it just means that it's you know uh, April. You know, it just means that it's made. Just it, it, so I think because of that, uh, these films don't matter as much, kind of the same way. But you know, at the same time, to look at like Woody Allen, for example, uh, throughout the 1980s, it was a goddamn gift to the universe that this brilliant, brilliant man made like one masterpiece every year. Like that was a wonderful thing. That was something that people could set their clock to, that they could look forward to. He maintained this incredible high level of uh, of quality. Um, you know, whereas now it, it seems more like a threat. Uh, it's there's 
a stunning sense of inevitability. And, and just personally, he's somebody who, who used to matter to me so much, and I have no desire to see his new motion picture. Part of me also just, you know, knows that there will be another one uh, next year. What about you, Keith? I, I mean, I think we're really, uh, I don't think it's really a fair comparison. I think these are directors who work on a vastly different scale. I mean, uh, I mean I've, I've loved every one of Paul Thomas Anderson's movies and would, would you know, value, I would, I would love to get one every year, but that's not really necessarily uh, possible the way he works. Whereas as Swanberg, I'll, I'll admit to not keeping up with, with his work, and I need, but I, it's, not, it's it sort of <laughs> has to do a lot with just being overwhelmed by films of, of all directors. But um, I mean, I think someone who's working on a smaller scale, turning out smaller films working quickly uh, I think it make for a very interesting career as, as well um, I mean there's there's there, you know I, I, th- I think you really have to readjust things and uh, but I think on the whole I'd probably rather have people working being a little more prolific than a little uh, less I mean I mean years um, you know the years between a Whit Stillman film have not necessarily I, I think of anything I'm kind of kind of hurt him because um, when he came back it felt like people we need a reminder as who Whit Stillman was you know and, and I'm not sure uh, um, that that's necessarily best for him or for us. I would love to have all those years with, with uh, filled with Whit Stillman films that didn't happen. Right, and I think like for a lot of filmmakers, particularly documentary filmmakers, it's a matter of feast or famine. It's the movies that you can get made as opposed to you know this deliberate plan to churn out a certain number of films. So I think that kind of explains uh, why certain filmmakers such as your Alex Gibney's can be ridiculously prolific. Uh, in, in a, a specific uh, period of time. Well, I, on on Gibney, I mean, I think it's a matter t- too of just just you know being f- filmmakers whose work you just want to see. <laughs> you know, right. I mean, you know, I, I think Gibney, I think maybe we become a little familiar with his style of of movie making. He he makes he makes you know has a sort of a journalistic style, um, and uh, you know, but but uh, Noel is noting in his review of the Falakuti documentary that there are elements of that film that that smack of just you know of a filmmaker who isn't spending enough time on it who's not taking some you know an element uh, that's uh, that's intriguing and, and really developing it i mean it's hard as a critic because we're not actually you know they're making the movie to really speculate how much time somebody is spending on it whether that's actually the root cause of a film's you know success or failure yeah but, i think it judge the results i mean i think ultimately draw conclusions from whether or not people are, are able to turn out stuff on a streak or not i mean i mean soderbergh re- retired film director steven soderbergh <laughs> had an amazing uh run there where uh film after film would come out and and each one would be remarkable then it felt like maybe perhaps he's, he was the, the quality did dip and you do have to ask the question at that point is, is he trying to take on too much well, I think Richard Linklater is kind of an interesting yeah. example, too, where he's a guy who is, like, sneakily prolific because he, like, sure. has all these movies that he does that uh, people don't know that he's actually making. <laughs> but at the same time, he's doing so many different kinds of movies, and they're all so audacious. They're all so accomplished. There's not this sense of uh, being kind of dashed off in the way that a Swanberg or a Woody Allen movie uh, might be. I think there's also, you know, uh, the kinds of films. Like, Joe Swanberg's movies are small. They're deliberately small. Like, that's one of the charming things about them. That's nice, and it's been lovely to kind of see this progression. I mean, I think Happy Christmas is the best thing he's ever done. Um, and it's, you know, uh, far and away. And it's nice to see that, you know, you can start from kind of a modest place and get better and better and better. And hopefully, you know, uh, he will continue that streak. And the next 40 or 50 uh, Joe Swanberg movies will be even more delightful uh, than the first 40 or 50. It does raise a question, though, of, of 
uh, and this may just be, uh, oh, whoa, the critic, but but when you actually want to step back and, and grapple with these filmmakers' bodies of work as a whole, it becomes a lot more daunting. There's yeah. that much more to look at. <laughs> yeah. It's so. like career view, uh, Rainer Werner Fassbender, yeah. <laughs> or, or, or Takashi Miike, who at one point was doing five or six movies a year. True, but it's not like Fassbender is considered one of the all-time greats. You know, I mean, this is someone who, who worked, apparently seemed to have worked himself to death in a way, but, yeah. but, uh, right. um, but uh, you know, there's, there's, there's many different paths to to, to cinematic greatness. There, right. there well, is, yeah. uh, well, I also wonder about about how much just the uh, production process costs people. I mean, in terms of, you know, uh, we, we have a lot of filmmakers working more prolifically if they have that sort of Swanberg or Woody Allen system where it's just like there, there's going to be this kind of source of of money wherever that comes from. I mean, not not, not obviously a lot with Swanberg, but certainly with, with Alan is going to have, have, have backers and he's going to be able to work at a certain pace. You know, he certainly found a groove that he, that's lasted him for 40 years plus. Sure. Um, um, you know, but, but there are other cases maybe, you know, where, where filmmakers could potentially be putting movies out at, 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 at least a year, a movie a year pace, but they're just slowed by the process. Well, I mean, I think, uh, you know, when I interviewed uh, David Gordon Green uh, a while ago, it was interesting to kind of talk to him because, like, a lot of, like, he's incredibly prolific, and a lot of that is he does a lot of music videos and commercials and, and things of that nature. And, again, it's it's what can get made uh, at any given point. And, you know, he went through a period, uh, and I think, again, because he made so many movies, it felt like he went through this really long period in the wilderness when he just turned out, like, bad movie after bad movie after bad movie when in fact you know it was like your highness and the sitter um and then you know when he came back with with joe and prince avalanche like that was really really exciting to kind of see this this artist uh that he began with to kind of get him back yeah i, I think you raise an interesting point though where, where where it helps to have machinery in place i mean woody allen has a whole production system that that uh, you know people he works with again and again and there's always like kind of an on to the next one kind of feel i mean i re, you know the reason people were be able to were able to be so prolific in the studio era uh was that you know the 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 machine ground on and there was there was there was uh not that you know i all those often was the case but but you know you could drop a director into the director slot and, and there were a lot of other things that were going to get that movie made, you know. Yeah. Um, but people who could work within that kind of system, you could uh, could have their, you know, could express themselves uh, very, you know, very well. Uh, there's just not that kind of uh, machinery in place anymore, and there hasn't been for a long time. But I also feel like the support system for indie filmmakers is, is a lot more precarious these days than it was even ten years ago. Right. I mean, at the opposite end of the, of the spectrum, we have somebody like uh, Jean-Luc Godard in the 1960s who was being incredibly prolific um, because you know the opposite was true. Was he didn't really need many resources to make a movie. He could write the script sort of on the fly. He could improvise while he was there. He could edit. You know, he could kind of create these things on the fly. And again, I think that's, you know, why people like Joe Swanberg can be so prolific is because you don't need a lot, uh, including a finished script, uh, in order to make a movie. I also, though, I, I have to confess to, to, to having, uh, you know, sort of the fantasy sometimes of just like, you know, it's taking Woody Allen and just saying, just saying, stop for a second. Like, just take two years. Like, right, take one right. extra year to to take this piece of material and really develop it. Because I, because there is, I, I think, I think you can. You know, it's different for different people can work at different paces and do great work in a very little amount of time. But but I think there is kind of you know, in Woody Allen's case specifically, it, almost a force of habit that takes over and and a, and a lack of investment in an individual work. Uh, um, you know, and it's true of Gibney as well. I mean, and you just get tired of it too. I mean, you just, Gibney especially, it's like Jesus, the guy has made what? How many documentaries? Like in uh, in the last uh, 
like what somebody was saying, like fifteen in the last like six eight years, years or, or something. Yeah, eight something years. Like that. A lot. Yeah, well, that's a lot of films. I never actually never. <laughs> yeah, got, yeah. I mean, I've not seen every Alex Gibney film, but I never quite gotten people's frustration with him because I, I feel like I'm just sort of picking up a new issue of Alex Gibney magazine and learning about the topic at hand. And I walk away from all those movies better informed about the topic than I was going in. So well, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't necessarily I, get the frustration I with like, that particular filmmaker. You know, I like your uh, sort of metaphor of being like, like a magazine. Cause I feel like that's kind of what these really prolific filmmakers are like. You don't feel like, Oh, this is this new statement they're making. And it's like, well, this is a new issue of their comic book sure. or, or their, or their, uh, another short story. Uh, and in a collection of short story that they've done before, that it doesn't necessarily. And then, like with Woody Allen, there's uh, the sense that you know a lot of films can feel like uh, first drafts. Mm. You know, they can feel like doodles. You know, like he's kind of started to work his way through an idea without working it through completely. I think I think this same can be said for Clint Eastwood too. Which I, oh yeah, uh, the story about J. Michael Straczynski who wrote the screenplay to uh, Changeling, and and you know he got Eastwood agreed to film it, and there was sort of uh, uh, Straczynski was like, great, when do you want another draft? He's like, no, we're filming this draft. And I think there's sort of that. <laughs> I always feel like Eastwood films kind of kind of kind of uh, rise or fall based on the strength of his screenplay, in part because the screenplay is what he films. Yeah, and well, he also he also has that that. Um, uh, no, everyone talks about. He's the opposite of David Fincher. He just he if it if one or two takes does it, he'll move he'll, he'll move right on. He's not yeah. he's not somebody who's just going to sweat over every shot and every scene. Um, and uh, you know, there I, I, again, I think I think you can see you know a, a certain amount a certain lack of a, a lack of refinement sometimes a certain sloppiness uh, you know and kind of feel like it needs a little more work. You know, but I, I guess on the other side of that, you know, you can see a David Fincher film and say this is this is bloodless you know this is mm-hmm. this is, this has been too worked over um this could use some of the spontaneity you know somebody who might work a little faster uh you know certainly you know i, I know a certain actors certainly feel that way uh sometimes working having to yeah, work i don't think i don't think jill and hall is going to work with david fincher again anytime soon based on, on the, no. the one article i read about that no not at all um you know I mean, we talk about what, what these filmmakers can accomplish um working that quickly but what is the effect on 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 the viewer sometimes and their expectation i mean nathan you talked about paul thomas anderson movies being kind of an event you know is that something that just gets gets do we end up taking these filmmakers for granted that turn out turn out these work so quickly i mean there's also that the the opposite could be true is is uh, uh a, a filmmaker who doesn't work that often puts out a film and you're really excited about it and it's a big event and it's not that good and then it's another five years before you yeah. get the next one and and you know you have to kind of uh re- reassess things and think well should i be excited about this one or is it going to be just like the yeah, last that one? might well, be the Whit stillman example actually all right well and at a certain uh point too i think kind of the law of averages sort of kicks in uh and like if clint eastwood makes you know 25 movies some of them are going to be really good some of them are going to be unforgiven some of them are going to be blood work some of them are going to be like very much in the middle um so yeah it, it's not quite the event that might have been at some point but okay uh well uh nathan and uh keith uh, thank you very much thank, thank you, you scott In honor of The Expendables 3, which is now playing at a theater in a BitTorrent site near you, the game this week is called The Touch, a quiz about the ancient stars of the movie and, the, and some of their past action vehicles. Uh, no buzzers necessary here. Uh, everybody gets a turn. Uh, joining me are... Keith Phipps. Nathan Raven. And Tasha Robinson. All right. Keith Phipps, you're up first. Multiple choice. It's like, it's like the SAT. What, except with action movies? Like, what, what would SAT stand for if you have actions in the middle? What would the S and the T Sucky stand for? Sucky action teams. Yeah, something like, like that. that. There we go. Um, okay, Keith, 
Which of the following 80s montage songs was not written by Stan Bush? Uh, A, No Retreat, No Surrender. B, You're the Best. C, Take It Like a Man. D, The Touch. I believe, okay, give me the options one more time. A, No Retreat, No Surrender. Okay, I'm going to go with A. No. No. You're the Best from uh, Karate Kid. Oh, That's written by Joe Bean Esposito. Who, per, who performs it? I think that maybe it's just Joe Bean Esposito, but it's not. It's not. It's not Stan Bush. <laughs> okay, but is that the same as Jelly Bean Esposito, Madonna's old producer? I don't think That's so. That's Jelly Bean Benitez. Oh, Benitez. Okay, all right. Famous, famous the for the song "Sidewalk Talk." It doesn't work <laughs> yeah. if you don't stick the finger quotes in. And I, use, right. I use famous very loosely here. It's true. Nathan, to you, yes. uh, The Expendables Three is catching a lot of flack for its PG thirteen rating, but Ooh. many of its stars have gone soft before. Which is a, a down periscope joke? Because <laughs> that's a little crude. <laughs> which of the following vehicles is not rated R? Yeah, right. Uh, a. Dolph Lundgren in Red Scorpion. Boo. B. And so, Jack Abramoff uh, produced uh, Red Scorpion, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> you should not have said that. All right. Uh, th- all right. Well, that that fucks up one of our trivia questions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, we're going to go with 11 trivia questions this week. Uh, shit. Um, I like that I've correctly answered a question without being asked one. Please. This is, this is like a superpower. Keep here. spouting trivia, and this game is going to like only go I feel like Kelsey minutes. Grammer in Down Periscope. I'm so empowered. <laughs> fortunately, that, fortunately, there are no Down Periscope questions. All right. All right, Nathan. Which of the following is not rated R? Uh, a, Dolph Lundgren and Red Scorpion. Produced by Jack Abramoff. <laughs> uh, B, Antonio Banderas in Ballistic X versus Sever. Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, C, Jason Statham in Transporter 2. Or D... Produced by Luc Besson. <laughs> or D, Arnold Schwarzenegger in Commando. I am going to say uh, that would be Ballistics X versus Sever. Incorrect. Oh. Transporter 2. Huh. Which was which was produced at an R rating and then cut to a PG thirteen for theaters. Ooh. Yeah, pretty bad. Um, Tasha, to you. C. Jack Abramoff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, which of the following actors in The Expendables has the earliest screen credit? Uh, a. Arnold Schwarzenegger. B. Sylvester Stallone. C. Jet Li. D. Harrison Ford. Wow, that's an interesting one. Oh yeah, well, thanks. I, I mean, I'm just I'm thinking of the the earliest films I can think of for each of them, mm-hmm. and uh, let's let's go with Harrison Ford. Yeah, that's right, Nate, Harrison Ford. Uh, Dead Heat on a Merry Go Round. N- uh, maybe. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. This uh, the one I have. The one with, that actually has him credited is uh, A Time for Killing, 1967. Oh wow. Um, yeah, so, I, I could only get back to the early 70s, but uh, everybody else, I was I was thinking like late 70s, early 80s. So. Yeah, Stallone. Stallone is Stallone is the next. Uh, Wait, did earliest. I just score a point in a game Scott did? Yep, you're you're in the lead. One zip zip. Uh, though I guess, <laughs> oh, I, guess I, I guess I'm gonna have to give to uh, Nathan the jab. Everyone think that's yes. terrible. Uh, maybe not. Uh, Okay, this is to this is to Keith. Uh, who has worked with Brigitte Nielsen more, yeah. Keith? <laughs> A. Arnold Schwarzenegger. B. Sylvester Stallone. C. The Insane Clown Posse. Or <laughs> D. Each has only worked with her once. It feels like a trick question because um, obviously Stallone is the obvious answer here. I, I maybe I think the trick question is that it's actually D. No, it is Stallone. Oh, Stallone. Right, Rocky right. Four and Cobra. Sometimes the easy answer oh, yeah, yeah. is the... Uh, is, uh, yeah. 
I was like, how do I? Wow, she was in that uh, what money wrestling? What is it? Big money wrestling. Big money, yeah. right? Yeah. So uh, I'm glad, glad that it, you would have gotten that right, wouldn't I, you? I would have. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, maybe I know I, a lot about Bridget Nielsen. Clearly, her career has uh, would have only gone upward from there if she'd done more ICP. <laughs> well, I have a super Byzantine question for you, Nathan, to punish you for the, the Abramoff thing. All right. Okay. Sylvester Stallone is bringing some new wrinkled faces to Expendables Three, <laughs> uh, but who has too he worked? And come on, Botox. But who has he worked with before? Uh, a. Wesley Snipes. B. Harrison Ford. C. Antonio Banderas. D. All three. E. Just Snipes and Ford. F. Just Snipes and Banderas. G. Just Ford and Banderas. Well, he has worked with uh, Wesley Snipes. Yes. That is something that has happened uh, okay. before. Uh, he also worked with... Uh, who is that other uh, fellow? Uh, there's also know? Harrison Ford and Antonio Banderas. Uh, he's worked with Antonio Banderas uh, before. I don't know if he's worked with uh, the actor uh, entitled Harrison Ford before. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with the one where he worked with the two, but not Harrison Ford. That's correct. Yes. Wow. That is, wait, nice wait. Done. What letter was that, though? <laughs> <laughs> Jack Abramoff. I'm pretty sure it was crude. And yeah. Down Periscope. Uh, Demolition Man and Assassins would be the two. Huzzah, the two there movies. we go, yes. Good job. Either I, C, or P. Um, <laughs> Tasha. It's almost inevitable that desperate action stars will wind up in a film by Uwe Boll. Uh, two expendable stars have been in a Uwe Boll movie. Jason Statham and A. Dolph Lundgren, B. Kellen Lutz, C. Randy Couture, or D. Robert Davi. Can I, can I phone a friend? Can I phone Nathan <laughs> who's sitting right here and who's seen way more Uwe Boll than I have? It's Dolph Lundgren, isn't it? I it think I Dolph. saw that movie. Yep, in the name of the in the name of the King Part Two. Part Two, which Ooh. is one of the most the least memorable movies of all time, and yet I, I, so so much so that I actually wrote extensively about it, and I still barely remember it. Except that it is a a big action film where the action climax consists of Dolph Lundgren hitting the bad guy in a small bathroom. <laughs> that's, that's the setting for the explosive. So I, I, I managed to, to hit the one bull film you've seen. You say how many bull films have you seen? Uh, I've seen both uh, in the name of the king movies, and that's that might actually be it. Yeah, that's enough. No, oh, it's more than enough. More it's than way too enough. Much. Too much. Okay. Um, uh, this one goes to Keith. Keith. Many of the cast members of the Expendables Three have experience as professional athletes. Which sport is not represented? Uh, a MMA. B, football, C, boxing, or D, hockey? Huh. All right. Well, I know MMA is in there. Um, football makes sense to me to be in there. What are the other ones? Boxing and hockey. Boxing and hockey. Boxing's got to be in there somewhere. I'm going to say hockey. That's good thinking. Yeah. Worked through the question. Uh, the MMA, there are two MMA, MMA people. Uh, Ronda, Ronda Rossi. Rossi? Oh, this is terrible. The MMA people are going to kill me. Randy Couture. <laughs> they can. Um, uh, B is, uh, the football would be Terry Crews. Yeah. And uh, boxing would be Victor Ortiz. They're all smiling. They're all smiling on that <laughs> poster. They're really excited to be in the movie. Uh, all right, Nathan, to you. Uh, Dolph Lundgren is six foot five inches tall, and he towers over many of the small but mighty Expendables. <laughs> Who's the shortest of the of the of these tiny actors? Uh, A. Uh, Sylvester Stallone. B. Antonio Banderas. C. Jet Li. Or D. Wesley Snipes. 
Well, I think since many of the jokes in uh, the first Expendables movies involve Jet Li being a leprechaun of some sort, <laughs> uh, I'm going to say that the, the answer is, is uh, Jet Li. But, and that's why people are always go- uh, going after his, his uh, pot of gold. <laughs> that, that is correct. The answer is Jet Li. Yes. Uh, Nathan, Nathan with a point. What, is he, what, what are we looking at here? Nathan's got a couple. Uh, Tasha hasn't missed. Uh, Keith, Keith has one. Uh, I feel like we're playing Trivia Pursuit, and I keep getting the entertainment questions while other people are getting the, the sports and music questions. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to skip over the question, which of the following ace action vehicles was produced by notorious right-wing political lobbyist Jack Aramoff? See, Red Jack Demolition Man. Huh? Uh, I think it's Red Scorpion. Yeah, it is Red Scorpion. And Periscope. God damn it. Um, so but, wait, that would have been my question. Don't I, don't yeah, I get the point because I know the answer? Would you have known the answer? Be <laughs> oh, honest. All right. Of course I wouldn't have known the answer. All right. Would you have gotten out of, the, out of, out of uh, if I were to give you options like uh, Raw Deal, Red Scorpion, Showdown in Little Tokyo, and Rainbow 3, would you have gotten the answer right? Have I even heard of any of those movies? Oh, Rambo 3? Okay. Ram- Rambo? <laughs> All right. I've got, a, I've got a good one for you, Tasha. Oh, no. Uh, That's never, never good. <laughs> three of the following taglines are from action films starring Expendables cast members. Ooh. Which is the one I made up? Uh, A, some fight for money, some fight for glory. He's fighting for his son's love. B, in the shadows of life, in the business of death, one man found a reason to live. C, they think they control him. Think again. Or D, they run the streets. Tonight, the streets run with blood. <laughs> I love the fact that one of these things came out of your brain. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm no Stephen Thompson on Pop Culture Happy Hour here. I, I cannot read the mind of Scott Tobias. Can I have those again? Okay. But, but in an action movie uh, voice like they would be in the trailer? Okay. A, some fight for money, some fight for glory. He's fighting for his son's love. <laughs> B, in the shadows of life, in the business of death, one man found a reason to live. C, they think they control him. Think again. D, they run the streets. Tonight, the streets run with blood. Wow. Okay, I, I'm sure that we're all the winners here, but uh, I'm going to go with the shadows of life, the business of death business. No. Yes, right. my, my fake one worked. <laughs> it's, it's, it's D, they run the streets. Tonight, the streets run with blood. <laughs> oh, man. That was me. And uh, the, the shadows of life, assassins would be in the shadows of life in the business of death. The first uh, one is over the top, correct? Absolutely. That oh, was, yeah, that, yeah, that yeah, was a gimme. True. They think they control one of my favorite Seth Stallone movies. I believe Jack Abramoff may have had something to do with C. <laughs> uh, they think they control him. Think again. This is when he, when uh, he turns against the Soviets. It's awesome. Um, all right, Tasha, you failed. Now on, on to Keith. Failed miserably. Um, my son will never love me now. Thanks, God. <laughs> Keith, uh, Wesley Snipes served jail time for tax evasion, as you, as you may know. Which of the other Expendables stars has spent time in the clink? A, Jason Satham. B, Kelsey Grammer. C, Kellen Lutz. D, Randy Couture. E, none of the above. F, all of the above. It's not all of the above, I'm pretty sure. It could be none of the above. I want to say Kelsey Grammer. I think it's just because I want Kelsey Grammer to be jail. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I'm going to say none of the above. That's right. Keith Phipps. Thinking his way through these questions. Uh, we are all knotted up, which is not good. No. Um, which is not good. Let us try. Uh, let me try to find what my way like through this. What is the tension of an action movie in here? A three-way so I feel tie. like I should punish, punish Nathan here. All right, Nathan. Uh, the Expendables have colorful names like Lee Christmas, Toll Road, Gunnar Jensen, and Conrad Stonebanks. Those are a lot of fun. Those are a lot of fun. Uh, three of the following are ridiculously named characters the stars have played in other movies. Which one did I make up? 
Uh, A, Lincoln Hawk. B, Simon Phoenix. C, Major Tanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> D, Captain. <laughs> this sounds like a, a really bad Bond girl. <laughs> I'm gonna go with Major Tanks a lot. <laughs> you don't even. You don't even want that far. You haven't even gotten a four. <laughs> that would have been a great vehicle for. Um, Kelsey Grammer post out Periscope. People wanted more action from him. Are you sure he made them wait till Expendables three? That is not kind. Are you sure it isn't Major Ivana? What if that's not it? (laughs) You realize we're we're laughing more over this question than anybody laughed over any of the Expendables. D. Captain Ivan Danko. Actually, no, I'm saying C. I'm, I'm saying movies with all <laughs> of know, the you're characters. Right. You're, you're right. You're right. Uh, C is correct. See, I, 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 tested, I, I tested this. I tested this on 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 Genevieve via IM, and she she guessed incorrectly. But I think she <laughs> she didn't get the pun. And I was trying. Oh, I was trying to 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 say it in a way. <laughs> Tengsala. Yep. <laughs> Thanks, Ella. Oh, it's like stakes for nothing. Well, actually, that puts Nathan well into the lead. Okay, Tasha, this is for the tie. Question 12. Which global hotspot did Sylvester Stallone clean up in Rambo 3? A, Vietnam, B, Pakistan, C, Afghanistan, or D, Cambodia? Oh, obscenity. Um... <laughs> Gosh, it was, uh, he was a Vietnam vet. He didn't go back. It was Cambodia, wasn't it? It was not. Damn it. He uh, aided our uh, allies in the Taliban. Well, they weren't the Taliban yet, but yeah. Yeah, he was, he was fighting the Soviets in uh, Afghanistan. In Afghanistan. Yep. Oh. Still known oh, as a skill man the most man recent one. Was the most movie, recent one Cambodia? That movie holds up great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's just the, the, glo- the global it, politics it, of that it, film. It's, it's a lot of fun. I think the, the most recent one was Cambodia. Okay, so I didn't just make that up. I feel a little bit better about that. Yep, I'm a, I'm a tricky one. Uh, but uh, so, so Nathan Raymond. Yes. You are triumphant. How do you feel? Like uh, Kelsey Grammer and Don Paris. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. uh, As far as I'm concerned, it just means he's expendable. (laughs) Nathan, Tasha, Keith, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Sure. And now we've reached 30 seconds to sell. We're in... Tasha Robinson. And... Keith Phipps. Have 30 seconds to convince me to buy their recommendation, whether it's for a film, a soundtrack, an idea, whatever. I hope you both thought long and hard about something I would like. Um, all right, Keith, let's start with you. Uh, you have 30 seconds starting three, two, one, go. Well, as part of our research for a Nicolas Cage career review, I watched the movie Valley Girl, one of his earliest films. I hadn't seen it before, but I'd, not, I'd forgotten what a charming little film it is. It's very low-key. It's very kind of, uh, it's more in the fast times at Ridgemont High School than the porky school of doing things. And it's got really nice performances, not just from Nicolas Cage, who's, who's, who's not, has still finding his cageness uh, in, in some ways, but uh, kind of across the board, especially Frederick Forrest and Colleen Camp as hippie parents of the teenage lead played by Deborah Foreman. Nice movie Martha yeah. Coolidge, Martha. oh man really yeah that was a very strange thing you seem to be timing it to, to land perfectly at 30 seconds and then you just kept going very interesting strategy let's see let's, <laughs> let's uh let's see what let's see what tasha comes up with uh all right tasha three two one 
go. All right, I recently caught up on the documentary Jodorowsky's Dune about a failed adaptation of the book uh, Dune, which Jodorowsky, the director of El Topo and Holy Mountain, uh, was trying to pull together with a bunch of people. The film is basically just him talking about all of the insane uh, things that he did to pull together cast members, including Mick Jagger, uh, Orson Welles. Uh, he had Dan O'Bannon lined up at one point. He had Pink Floyd. It is an insane project that he was working on, and it will make you, it will break your heart that this movie never happened. And there you go. Well, um, I don't know what to do here. I, I've uh, this is this is all very close. I've seen. I, I don't know if I've seen Valley Girl, which which definitely is a point in your favor because I think Martha Coolidge is quite 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 talented. Um, uh, Joe Dorsey's Dune I have seen, and, and I felt like it was good, but also just just kind of a basically a, a, a glorified DVD extra. Um, uh, but but Tasha Robinson, I'm going to give it to you anyway because I feel like I feel like that 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 uh, you watched it on DVD uh, <laughs> properly, and uh, and I think I think it's the sort of thing that keeps that you you like to wrap your mind around. I'm actually pretty glad it didn't get made. I feel like the idea of it uh, is. Uh, uh, I, more fascinating than the result probably would have been. I'm kind of with you on that. It, yeah. it definitely seems like something that's that's better uh, considered uh, than actually accomplished. Yeah, definitely. Uh, okay, Tasha, uh, Keith, thank you very much. Thank you. That does it for episode 26 of the Dissolve podcast. Please join us in two weeks for more opinions, insight, and general tomfoolery. In the meantime, you can enjoy the Dissolve in Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and website form. If you have any questions or thoughts, please email us at feedback at the dissolve.com. The Dissolve podcast is produced by Genevieve Kosky with assistance from Colin Griffith. And if you'd like, we'd encourage you to post ratings and or comments on the show on iTunes, but only if you have the time. We know you've got important things to do. Uh, we respect that. <laughs> <laughs>